What do you want? Screaming Queens. Listen, I am two seconds away from calling the police. Screaming Queens horror podcast. Something is trying to get inside my body, and you want to sleep with me. Give me those shoes, they're mine. Give them back to me. Be sure to tell the young woman that mother sends regards. Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. Shouldn't you be folding towels somewhere, sniffing jock strap? It rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. But it certainly will be a nice little surprise when Richard comes home to find a little girl in the house. I see no manhood between your legs. We are the weirdos, mister. I can see your dirty fellows. It was an asylum! And it was hell! 20 years of pure hell! We have such sights to show you. To a new world of gods and monsters. Hello and welcome to Screaming Queens, the queer horror podcast. You are joining me for a very special episode. Um, for the first time, well, in a long time, we've got a guest on, but also we are international. So today we are recording here in Liverpool in my little back room, but also all the way over in Austin, Texas, because in this episode, I am joined by the fabulous Amanda Reyes. Hello, Amanda. Oh my gosh. Hi, John. How are you? <laughs> oh, I'm good. I'm good. Um, I'm still freaked out by using this Zencaster thing and not actually being able to see the person that I'm talking to. Um, but, you know, luckily we've met before on a few occasions, so I know just what you look like. So it's well, right. I'm not wearing any makeup, so it's for the best <laughs> that we're doing it this way. Okay. All right. <laughs> so um, the reason Amanda's joined me on this episode is um, we are going to be talking about a TV movie. And I consider Amanda to be the high priestess of made-for-TV movies and made-for-TV horror as well. Um, so Amanda um, published a book. When, when when did the book come out? Are you in the house alone? When was that? Uh, it came out in 2017 through Head Press. Okay, so 2017, the book Are You in the House Alone, which is a compendium of essays and articles on the TV movie genre, uh, TV movie and uh, specifically genre films and, and TV movies as well. So Amanda was behind that that amazing book, um, which I absolutely loved. That went down a storm, didn't it? People really responded well to that. Yeah, it did way better than I thought it would. Like I, I thought it would be this book that would come out. Maybe a couple people would buy it and hopefully enjoy it. And yeah. I'm still getting tagged on Twitter and sometimes yeah. on Facebook and through email. Um, people are just still picking up the book and really enjoying it. And I can't even tell you how pleased I am by that. Yeah, I love the book. I thought it was great. Oh, I think, thank you. I think it was around when that book came out. That mean you first started talking on Twitter, wasn't it? I think. Yeah, like. I'm not even sure exactly how we connected, but um, probably around 2017. Yeah. 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 So one of the really lovely sides to social media is that sometimes you do get to connect with like-minded people who you can actually become friends with in real life. It's not just trolls out there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I've been lucky. I've been quite lucky because I've, you know, I've made friends through through Twitter, like Rachel Nisbet and Andy Roberts from Nasty Pasty Podcast as yes. well. Various other people. But me and you, Amanda, we, we actually got to meet in quite glamorous surroundings, wasn't it? It was very glamorous <laughs> and sort of creepy as well that place so amanda you gave you were given a talk when you're in la um <laughs> what, was, what was the name of the venue i can't remember what it was oh called. i can't remember either but it was like this weird sort of hippy dippy new wave yeah kind of place and um you were there with your partner and um 
not there at the venue, but they're in yeah. LA, which was so weird because neither one of us are really even that close to Los Angeles. So it's funny no. we ended up there at the same time. Exactly. It was Christmas. Yeah. And so you got to come to my uh, thing and yeah, it was a really neat venue. It was, um, Oh, it's even hard. It's like for, it's like for new age stuff. It's, and it was like a lecture hall with a movie screen. So it worked yeah. out really well for my purposes and for Miskatonic Institute, which was who the person was that I gave the, or the, I should say the, the organization I gave the talk for. And, um, but, uh, you couldn't stay very long. So we met a couple of days later at a Thai place yeah. and, yeah. <laughs> and we talked about everything specifically Melrose place and Madonna, which was yeah. so amazing for me. My, yeah. My main, my main memories were Melrose Place, Madonna, and Halloween too. We talked, oh, yeah. and we just talked for like four hours or something nonstop. It was just really nice and yeah, absolute bliss. It was brilliant. Yeah, it was great. Um, and then we've met up since then as well in the glamorous Birmingham as well, didn't we? Yeah, I'm still apologizing for the panini I bought you because I realized <laughs> that every other place in Birmingham had way better food except for that place I took you to. So I owe you a, a better dinner at some point. Oh no, don't, honestly, don't worry. Birmingham's a funny old place. It's a, it's just it's a, yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, so we I wanted I've been sort of wanting to talk about talk to you on the podcast for a while um, and there, there are many sort of genre tv movies out there to pick from but this one that we're talking about today i thought was such a good idea to to bring you on for because you actually recorded the audio commentary for the screen factory blu-ray release correct yeah 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 so um so before john carpenter's classic slasher halloween was unleashed on an unsuspecting audience he actually wrote and directed the tv movie if you're a horror aficionado, none of this is new to, news to you, but it's surprising, I think, how few people have actually seen today's film choice. I saw it on TV late one night when I was probably in my 20s, and I fell in love with its tense, Hitchcockian, high-rise thrills, and somehow it went completely over my head that it had been written and directed by John Carpenter, but uh, I do recall thinking as I watched it that it was reminiscent of Halloween in many ways, not to mention it featured the actress Adrian Barbo, who I knew and loved from Carpenter classics like The Fog and Escape from New York, and it also features a telescope, a stalker, and a hell of a lot of oatmeal-coloured interior decor. Um, so without further ado, today Amanda and I shall be trawling through the 1978 classic, Someone's Watching Me. One week from tonight, she's young, beautiful, successful, and has everything to live for, but someone wants her dead. Hello? I'll find you. I don't give up. Lauren Hutton, David Burney, and Adrian Barbeau star in a chilling tale of suspense and terror. A twisted maniac is at large. Can he be stopped before it's too late? Someone's watching me next Wednesday on NBC. So the plot in a nutshell, um, TV director Lee Michaels moves to LA following a bad breakup. She gets herself a chic high-rise apartment, a cheery lesbian BFF, and even a new love interest. But she also acquires a stalker, one with murder in mind. But Lee's no pushover. She's not going to take this lion down. But can she survive the 90-minute running time without plummeting over her balcony to her death? Um, so there will be spoilers in this episode as we talk through the film. Um, but Amanda, when did you first come across Someone's Watching Me? You know, I saw it as a teenager. So um, I grew up in Las Vegas and uh, we didn't really have a lot of television selections Um at the time uh, that I was a child into being a teenager. And we, um, I watched a lot of local TV and luckily our local channel 
they really like to program TV movies on the weekends. And so I got really into those. I didn't realize that they were TV movies. I was too young to even understand the difference, but I would yeah. see things like trilogy of terror and uh, don't be afraid of the dark was a big one. And gargoyles. Those were the the three, probably the holy three and, or totally. unholy. And, um, <laughs> and so I, I kind of fell in love with them. And then we finally got cable and this is kind of a long story, I guess I'll try to make it short, but so, so like the first week I had cable, um, it's not even TV movie related, but I got obsessed with like just the selection of movies that would yeah. come on. And I remember there was a channel, I think it still exists called TBS. And, um, I watched nine to five, three times the first <laughs> week we had cable because they used to show the same TV movie on that channel over and over. And, um, and so I would just like show, so channels like TBS showed a lot of TV movies. As a matter of fact, I think it might've been TBS that I saw someone's watching me. So I was like 16 or 17 and I would have seen Halloween, as a kid, I saw it when I was like nine, maybe, but, um, I was actually really terrified of horror movies and that and Friday the 13th part two actually put me off of horror for a long time. Oh, wow. Okay. But, but then as a teenager, I had a friend and she and I started, she was really into horror. And so I started venturing back into it and we saw Prince of Darkness, um, on the big screen when it came out and it was amazing. And then this came on and I saw John Carpenter's name and I was just like, okay, I have to watch this because I loved Prince of Darkness and Halloween so much. Yeah. And I, you, you know, I never forgot it. And it was just this kind of funny movie that as I started going and discovering John Carpenter's filmography was a film that you never really heard people talk about. That's it. Yeah. People don't, people don't, they still don't know. I mean, you know, it's got this great Blu-ray release and um, be thanks to social media and stuff. It's, it's out there a lot more now, but, Still, it's not held up in high regard the way a lot of his, um, you know, his feature releases are. Yeah, that's really unfortunate. And I think it's just because it's a TV movie because people yeah. don't really take them as seriously. So, like, there's a lot of directors, with the exception of Steven Spielberg's duel, I think so many TV movies that came out of directors who were kind of cutting their teeth in that genre or medium, I should say, um, those movies kind of get looked be left behind, I guess that's the phrase I want to use. So a good yeah. example might be John Badham did a movie in the early seventies called, uh, isn't it shocking with Alan Alda and it's fantastic. And he would go on, you know, do Saturday night fever and war games and a lot of big movies, but mm-hmm. everybody kind of forgot about this TV movie he did with this really famous actor Ruth Gordon's in it. I mean, it's got this amazing cast and, and it's just sort of, it's never had a legitimate home video release to the best of my knowledge. And and it's just this thing that's on his filmography and it makes me so sad. And John Carpenter in a way suffered the same fate, except that this has had a home video release, I think on VHS, DVD and Blu-ray. So it's been lucky enough mm. to survive. Totally. Um, but you're right. It's not the one that people refer to at all. And I think if they're going to talk about his TV movies, they're going to talk about the miniseries he did. Um, um, Elvis. Uh, of course, with Kate Russell. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned Gargoyles there because when I was really young, like nine or 10, Gargoyles was on TV over here in the UK and I loved it. I was obsessed with it. And I think, I think my dad might've recorded it on TV, off TV for me. So I used to watch like a, a Bastille VHS of Gargoyles over and over. That's and amazing. I didn't even know because I was so young, I didn't know the difference between a TV movie and a, you know, a cinema release feature film. Um, so yeah, I never realized until probably in the last 10 years that that was even a TV movie. Yeah, it will. It's it's really so this has played in the theater here, Gargoyles. I was lucky enough to see it on the big screen because it did get a European theatrical release. Mm. So um, when you see it on the big screen, yeah, it's really kind of uh, the monsters are so beautiful 
and mm-hmm. it's really a well-made film. And I'm not saying other TV movies aren't well-made, but the, it has a fluidity to it that I think a lot of TV movies don't uh, have the luxury to have in their films because they're made so quick. Okay. Um, yeah, and sure. um, it does have kind of a quality to it. But yeah, when you're little, you're not thinking, oh, this is a TV movie and this is a theatrical. You're just thinking this is really good. Yeah. Yeah. I think the only different, the only, the only things I noticed when I've, I've seen TV movies when I was a kid was how they would... Um, they would end the same way an episode of Dynasty would end. So it, it ends with executive producer would come up yeah. on screen. And I'm like, why did that just happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, so guest star. And TV guest movies, star. Yeah, yeah, isn't that weird? Yeah. TV movies have guest stars, and it's so strange to me to see that. And I'm not sure what that where that comes from. I, and that's something I should really investigate further. But you strange, always see that, it. Yeah. Oh, how, can, how can you be a guest star in something if it's only one episode? Yeah, you know, I know. It's so but strange. it's nice. It's nice because yeah. sometimes you'll see guest star Robert Reed and then my heart just melts a little. <laughs> so, um, so the cast of Someone's Watching Me. So we've got Lauren Hutton, um, who she was in American Gigolo as well, wasn't she? Yes. Yeah. And she was also in, she was in Darren Starr's Melrose follow-up Central Park West, which only lasted oh. like a season and a half or something. Oh, I don't so she was so that Lauren Hutton played the sort of rich older woman in it. So it was all about 20 somethings in, in New York, but she was, the, you know, the, the slightly older, richer woman. Um, and she was great in that. She was sort of elegant and, um, you know, she had that smoky voice and stuff. And I'll never forget, they brought Raquel Welsh in towards the end of it to be like the Alexis character to oh. her. And they, <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. And they had a cat fight in a, in a, in a water fountain as well. Which was hilarious, but then yeah, it was too late. It was axed like halfway through season two. Oh, that's amazing. Um, that's so, my Lauren Hutton love. Yeah, so Lauren Hutton, this was kind of an early film for her, and yeah. at the time that she made it, um, well, she was a model uh, first, and she didn't really like modeling all that much. Like, she, I don't think she didn't enjoy it, but it wasn't very challenging to her. So acting became like a real passion, and she's okay. so good at it. She has such a, a natural ple- uh, presence, and she said. Uh, in a, some kind of TV guide or newspaper interview when she made the movie that at that time it was the best thing she'd ever done. She was really proud of it. And um, and she said that when they did their last day of shooting, she was applauded by the crew. And, wow. um, and so I think this was a special film for her. And I think that um, it proves how talented she is because like a huge chunk of the movie is literally just Lauren Hunt talking to herself. Yeah. Yeah, and, and to have her sort of as this character giving all these like soliloquies and inner and these sort of not inner monologues, but these monologues to herself um, and to carry the film in a way that you stay so captivated with her really shows how talented she is. Yeah. I mean, she's, she's also got great comic timing as well. So she's, yeah. uh, she's sort of funny and goofy and awkward at the same time as coming across as really chic and worldly at the same time. You know, she's, she manages to carry both of those things off. She's very relatable despite the fact that she's like, exquisitely yeah. beautiful you yeah. just i kind of feel like i could go to a bar with her and have a drink and we'd yeah. have a great time you know and she'd tell you really bad jokes yeah <laughs> i'm yeah. into it yeah totally so she starts she's the lead she plays lee michaels and um she's supported um amply by the wonderful adrian barbo who plays sophie her um her new best friend who's also a lesbian so you know yes. fabulous. um so is this the is this the, the movie that she met john carpenter on I believe it is. Um, I'm trying to remember now. I th- I think when she in her biography she talks well she talks a little bit in depth about making this, which was fabulous. But um, yeah, I feel like they met during this, and um, at the time I think she was known mostly for doing stuff like Maud, and she hadn't done a ton of 
uh, dramatic or thriller stuff. And I, I don't remember if it was this movie or something she would do like the fog, but she said John Carpenter gave her the best acting advice um, that she ever got. And I believe it was uh, to do less. Okay. And, um, and I think it helped her transition over because maybe comedy is broader. I'm not really sure. Um, you'd have to read that chapter. But I, I think that she, I remember her saying that he was, he just gave her really great advice. And, um, you know, it worked out because they were married for quite a while and have a child together, you know. She's really good in this. I think she's re- she's also quite, her and, um, her and Lee together, they've got such great chemistry. They come across like real friends in quite a, quite a short space of time. They sort of bond really quickly, I think. And it's, it's really convincing. Yeah, they do. And I think it's important that you mentioned that she's a lesbian too, because at the time that this was happening on TV, this was a rarity and it had happened before. I think soap predates this. I don't know if you have soap in the, in your country, but um, that was like a comedy, like a sitcom. We did. We did have it on, um, on cable or maybe channel four, but we, we did have it. That's with Billy Crystal, isn't it? Yeah. yeah and he, he he's considered the first gay character, I think on TV. She may predate that. I can't remember. And there was a movie called In the Glitter Palace, which is actually about a lesbian, I think, who gets accused of a crime she didn't commit. And um, oh, okay. so it was happening, but not to the extent that you might see it now. And what's so great about it is um, that it's really normalized quickly. Like she says, I'm gay, you know, Very and, quickly. and they're just friends and there's not a whole lot of conversation about it, except there's a reference later on at a restaurant where um, Adrian Barbeau's character says to Lauren Hutton, you know, you're not threatened by me. And she says, you know, I'm not threatened by men either. Exactly. Why would I be threatened by you? It's so yeah. cool. Cause it, in, in, so when she, and when, when, so when Sophie and Lee meet at the TV station, she, Sophie, um, asks basically, doesn't she? She says to Lee, what are you running away from back in New York? You know, who is he? And then, um, Lee says, you know, is it that obvious? And then, and then Sophie's relates to that. So Lee says to her, so who, who was, you know, who was he for you? And Sophie says, she, and then they have a really nice moment. And they were basically, she says, you know, I hope that's not a problem basically. And, and Lee replies with, of course not. And then they just sort of move on straight, straight away from yeah. there. Um, it's, it's so it's so nice it's so kind of you get the fact that it's in the 70s and it was still a big deal that a character has to say oh by the way I'm a lesbian but in the same beat it's so progressive because they just get on with it and there's no issue whatsoever it's yeah really I love progressive. it I love I it and I agree that they have a really strong friendship and um, so he did this movie before he made Halloween, but I think it aired like a month after Halloween premiered. And so he talked a lot about how he was refining like his filmmaking skills on this film. And one of the things that stands out to me when I watch Halloween and you really hit on it so beautifully is to point out that the friendships in Halloween are also established mm-hmm. fairly quickly. So I I wrote a paper when I went back to school on female friendship in horror movies. And one of the things I did was I timed the amount of time that uh, female characters spend with each other in a film. And what I did was I took the original film and then I, and then I took the remake and I compared the two in terms of just the female friendship angle. And I literally think there's only four minutes of screen time between the three women in Halloween um, together. And yet you get that they're really good friends. Totally. Yeah, Carpenter excelled at that. And so, and I love that because women are actually a huge audience for horror. I talk about it all the time. And um, I think he recognized that to the point where he had Deborah Hill actually write the dialogue of the women um, in Halloween. And so here, I think he's already attuned to um, 
the idea that that women are going to be watching this and it's important that women be like women they not be these antagonistic caddy like i know we love that you were just talking about the the water fountain fight between the two and that's fun but it's also great to see women getting along too well you just want to believe in them you want to believe in the friendship and it's it's the it's the same old rule for most horror isn't it is that if you believe in the characters and you care about them then you really don't want them to get killed you don't you 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 really don't want to see them go through the horror that they go through you want to see them prevail so so for the friendships to be real is, is a is a big deal um and it's funny so so i didn't i didn't know about deborah hill writing the dialogue for the girls in halloween did she do that for for the fog as well you know i don't know um i'm gonna recommend a book that, where i got that information from i i only know it in terms of halloween because the book is about slasher movies okay. it's called it's called blood money and it's by a guy named richard knoll and he is my other husband, he's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, that book is a game changer in term. And it's funny because it's a book about how um, horror slasher movies in particular marketed um, themselves to to the audience. And there's only like parts of the book are about women, but the parts that are about women um, are so incredible about the mm-hmm. way he looks at how filmmakers understood that women were going to see these movies. Cause so much of the talk about slashers and I know it's getting out topic, but so much of the talk about slashers has been how it's a man genre and it's yeah. men love slashers and women just go on dates and stuff, but that's not true at all. There's no, huge, totally. I'm always finding female slasher fans um, out there and, and the filmmakers actually recognize that. And so did the marketing people. And so they were very savvy about how they would create these films. So like black Christmas, which is in, Blood Money, Richard Noel talks about this, is using the tenets of second wave feminism, which were really at its height in 74, to create these women that other women could relate to, which is why the main character is pregnant and getting an abortion, because that was a big topic, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Black Christmas is a really good example, because you've got Bob, who's like unapologetically um, sexual and drunk throughout the film. Uh, And and also, yeah, with... um, uh, Olivia Hussey's character as well. What's really interesting about that is, you know, that when they talk about the trope of the virgin always being the, the final girl. Right. And in Black Christmas, well, she's having an abortion, but she's the final girl. Yeah. You know? It completely flies in the face of that stereotype, really. Yeah, she has a lot of autonomy. Matter of fact, the three leads, Andrew Martin, too, they all are, they're so diverse from each other. Amazing. And, you know, yeah. yeah, they're all unique characters and they're all their own person. They all, I think, have sexual autonomy, it comes across to me. But on top of that, um, Olivia Hussey's character also is autonomous in her life decisions. Now, you can argue about whether or not that's fair to Peter, who may or may not be the killer in the film, but that it's there is um, was something that Bob Clark recognized would be something that would draw women to the character. And um, and so, so we're going all the way back to the early 70s, and we see that these filmmakers understood that women enjoy these films. So let's write yeah. these films for them as well. And also, just to join you in... in, in- going even further off topic um i love the fact that my my favorite line my favorite scene in black christmas is it's such a small tiny scene that's probably comes across as quite insignificant but it's the bit where um you know where phil and jess have to lock all the doors and windows in the house because there's a killer on the loose and there's just this moment where they're both in the kitchen and they get freaked out by the guys coming and knocking to see if they're okay and they just burst out laughing they're in the middle of this terrible situation and they both burst out laughing and jess says do you realize that that's the only door in this house that's locked. <laughs> it's just yeah. this little moment where the friendship is so real. Yeah. And, you know, th- those are really, th- those are films I, those are um, examples of films I really respond to when you do really believe in the friendships. Um, 
so yeah, so it's interesting to just see how the you know they all link together and uh, with this film. Uh, the reason I asked you about Deborah Hill writing the dialogue was because, um, in the fi- so the first as you said before, the first ten minutes, I'd say fifteen minutes of the film, Lee is basically alone and talking to herself, and I noticed that John Carpenter films, um, so Halloween. Um, we have a similar thing where Laurie mm-hmm. sing, sings and talks to herself while she's yeah. alone. Annie sings and talks to herself when she's alone. Yeah. And then in the fog, Stevie Wayne, played by Adrian Barbo, she talks to herself up in that up in that lighthouse as well. And I noticed it's just it's, there's a sort of recurring thing with John Carpenter's female characters. They do that a lot. Um, but it never yeah, comes across as corny. It's quite nice to see. You know. Yeah, that's interesting. I never thought of it in terms of the fog, and I haven't gone past that to actually look at his other films. But yeah, it's an interesting trope, and and I noticed that myself when I rewatched someone's watching me for the commentary was the these songs, and the songs are always um, interestingly like foreshadowing what's about to happen. And I can't remember exactly the song she's singing uh, that first time we see her singing, and someone's watching me, but it's sort of referencing what's about to happen to her and of yeah. course you know in halloween just the two of us is it like very I disturbing it, i wish i had you all alone <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah totally so um so basically yeah we have um lee moves into this fancy uh, really chic high-rise apartment um it's really cool i want to live there basically yeah. and she, she's got this great um rear window style um modernist apartment block that that's opposite her apartment block as well so she basically when she looks out of her window she is faced with a big screen full of windows um and before she moves in, we get a little pre-credit sequence don't they don't we where a, a woman called elizabeth is being harassed by a guy with a telescope and he uses the line all those windows out there and i'm behind one of them so that sort of sets the scene and that sort of hitchcockian geometric line uh opening credits with a score that is very reminiscent of psycho and north by northwest yeah i think um so lee is in in la and she goes after a job at the local tv station um and what i thought was really interesting was that she essentially um she takes it as a given that the boss will hit on her yeah, it's kind of funny too that the boss doesn't seem that interested in her, but the yeah. uh, guy that works alongside her does for sure. Yeah, that's definitely yeah true. So she doesn't get sexually harassed by the boss. She doesn't get sexually harassed by Sophie. But then two minutes later, a guy calls. I think it's Steve. Yeah, I love Steve. Um, Steve, he's such a sleaze. <laughs> he is, but he's so cute. Like I'm watching yeah. it, and like the teenage me is thinking, "Oh, I would have went for that hardcore." Yeah. Totally, yeah, yeah. Um, and what does he say? He says, I won't give up. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it's like, okay, because finally, like, there's a point where she's he calls her and she's like, do you know what no means? Yeah, yeah. You know, she has to really spell it out for him. Totally. So um, I thought it was quite interesting that she got a funny phone call from the stalker at the office. That's right. She did. Like, he's he's on it. He's real good, this guy. Yeah done his research he's totally done his research so the first really scary moment for me is when she gets home so she gets the job she's she's going to be directing live television and then when she gets home she finds that the front door of her new apartment has been left open Mm. so she goes in and you're sort of on edge waiting for something to happen and then she she ends up on the on the phone to the phone company or the cable company who she thinks of, you it's know, the phone uh, company. Yeah. There's, yeah. I don't think cable was a th- really a thing yet. in 70s Yeah. So there's like a, a, the end. Yeah. So she just assumes that an engineer has left the door open, but as she's talking on the phone, we get the dark figure running past in the background. That is pure John Carpenter, isn't it? 
Yeah, it is. It's one. It's so to me crazy. the most terrifying scene in the film it's because, so yeah, because the way the camera works is it sort of pans across. I don't know if "pan" is the right word, but it kind of has has this flowing motion where it follows her yeah. into this room where the phone is, and then it kind of glides, right? Oh yeah, and, glide. um, yeah. yeah, and then it goes kind of like to one side of her, and then it glides back, and then it kind of sits on her, and then behind her is this like sort of where the door is, and it's open, and then you can see this figure just run by really fast, and she doesn't even recognize that there's anybody else in the apartment. It's not until she hears the door slam. Oh, yeah. 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 And it's just so perfectly done. And that guy had done a lot of TV movies. His name's the cinematographer um, is Robert B. Hauser. And he did a lot of TV movies. And it's interesting because um, even though he did a couple movies, he did The Legend of Lizzie Bourne, which is a classic. And he did some really good thrillers like Killjoy and No Place to Hide. But he did a movie called Nightmare with Richard Crenna and Patty Duke and something called okay. The Strangers in 7A. And those aren't. I think the best examples of TV movies, like they're both good, but I, I, they're not like in the top tier, but yeah. they both have really arresting cinematography in them. And so he was just really good at what he did. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's totally, totally the film. I mean, the film just looks, this looks so good, doesn't it? And I, f- I feel like it really comes out in, in a lot of the night scenes. There's a scene a bit later where she's, um, where she first meets Paul, the love interest. It's David uh, Bernie is the actor, but yeah, you know what I can't remember. Paul. Yeah, it is Paul. Um, so she meets Paul at the bar. And it's afterwards, you know, when he's walking into a car. Yeah. And it, just the way the, the the way it looks, the, the the way the night shots look, I think it just looks so beautiful. It's so yeah, filmic. It is, and they shot it in Century City, which I mean, you've been to LA, so it doesn't really. It's not representative of what most of LA looks like. No. And so it gives it kind of a more urban that LA doesn't have and so the location shot is really cool too and I want to just briefly since we're talking about Paul and the cinematography I want to talk a little bit about um when she first meets him in the bar and I did this on the commentary but it's such an important scene so one of the things that Carpenter's doing as a filmmaker with this film is he's what they call reversing the male gaze and the male gaze is just it's a long thing but you know it's about how we watch these movies and 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 in general the woman is objectified in the film and so for the woman to relate to the character it kind of uh, develops a sort of inner internalized sort of idea that women have to be the object in Mm -hmm. life to get the attention of the man who's always the star. Right. But when she sees him in the bar with John Carpenter, and he does this again, I guess later he changes the POV again, but um, for a different reason. But in this scene, when she sees him in the bar for the first time, the, the camera shot actually changes and it becomes her POV. We actually see the camera from her point of view, literally walking up to him in the bar. Yeah, totally. Then she's the aggressor in the relation in the meeting. I shouldn't say the relationship, but in the f- initial encounter, she approaches him and not the other way. And well, she's got a- the yeah, she's got the banter. She's got the chat up lines that are usually reserved for the male character as well, hasn't she? Yeah. she yeah, yeah. And it's such an interesting moment in the film. And then later on, in that very same scene, when they're when you're talking about the outdoor photography, they change the POV again, where it's then the stalker's point of view, watching them right through the bushes, which is complete out of a, you know, slasher before the slashers were made yeah. and stuff. And Completely. it's just, it's so well done. Like the, the photography in that is so meticulous. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of plot at this point, so before she meets Paul, we realize that her apartment has been bugged by the stalker. And then she gets those strange letters that start coming from excursions unlimited. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, um, I mean, this is a lovely scene because Lee and Sophie, we see that the bond is really quickly and Sophie's like coming around with the shopping and I think she's got to cook dinner at her apartment and they're just just firm friends already. And that's when she finds the letter from Excursions Unlimited, which is basically telling her that she'll be receiving gifts that are clues to a vacation destination. And if she guesses the destination, she wins a free trip there. Um, But we're like straight away, we're just thinking, "Mm, okay, this isn't, this doesn't sound too kosher. Yeah. Um, and but then straight so so then from there on, um from that little plot point, we then see Lee take herself off out for a drink on her own, sees a guy that she likes and go and she's the one who, as you say, she she goes up to him. It's and it's really it's really refreshing to see. Um and she she has one of the most strange lines of the whole film oh. where she's checks under a stool and she basically under his bar stool and she basically says i have strange fears of being raped by dwarves <laughs> what the fuck yeah i know it's so funny but you know that's the i think i noted in the commentary i'm trying to remember now that's the first mention of rape in the film but it comes up a couple of times and although yeah. yeah although lee is never physically assaulted by the guy into well until the end um yeah. that um it's a psychological rape and i love that at this time, um, television was really tackling the only venue really that was really tackling rape in any kind of real way from the woman's point of view. And Mm -hmm. so A Case of Rape came out in 73 with Elizabeth Montgomery. And that was a groundbreaking film about how the victim is continually victimized even after the attack. Like she just becomes a number. And what did you wear? What did you say? It's all about accusing the woman. And at that point, it really opened up a dialogue about, um, how women are treated in society and how they're looked at and victimized actually. And so this movie is actually taking that approach in, in a more of a metaphorical way, but um, very effective to me because you just notice, like I said, the dialogue, there's lots of references to it. And, and we, they are saying, and this is before, you know, stalking laws in this country didn't come into play until like 2000. So this, okay. yeah, we're talking about like recognizing a real issue that wasn't being addressed at that time. Yeah, and it's uh, it's it's quite depressing, isn't it? That you know that you know that she will eventually go to the police, and you you know that automatically they're going to say we can't do anything because he hasn't actually threatened you. You know, yeah, they can't, they can't actually, You just know before it even happens that that's going to happen. I mean, but you also know that because it's a it's a thriller with tinges of horror that the police are going to be useless anyway because they have yeah. to be for, for it to be a thriller. Um, yeah. So yeah, so they go. So basically, Paul tries his luck doesn't he he wants he wants to take her home on the first on the first night basically but she's just she's tells him that it's not going to happen just yet um she makes it clear that she likes him but she's not going to go home with him straight away basically um but then she goes to get in her car and then she changes her mind i can't remember why she changes her mind but she goes back to find paul and then she's suddenly alone in the park and there's a great shot where there's a light shaft of light just across her eyes in the mm. dark i think it's really beautiful um and it was at this point so i was watching a thing and how gorgeous it looked do you think it benefits from having a blu-ray upgrade that a lot of tv movies wouldn't get well i think it brings out the fact that a lot of tv movies do look really good because mm-hmm. when we originally would watch them a lot of times it was on black and white sets right in the 60s and so on and and the matter of fact they would make if you watch a lot of the old tv promos like i think then came bronson the for the pilot film for that, they talk about that it's in color because a lot of people didn't have color TV sets. And so they would promote it was in color, I think, because people with color sets would be drawn to watching those programs, you know, to take advantage of what they had. Um, but also because um, the way TV movies are shot is 
clearly different than the way theatricals are shot because they were meant to feel like a square box. And, and so, um, and you're watching them on things where everything relies on your antenna and, and you don't always see it the way maybe it was originally intended. And so, yeah, I wish they would release so many more of these TV movies on um, something with a better transfer because you could really see that there's a lot of artistry in them. Um, and I think yeah, that gets lost. And a lot of, some of them don't, they don't have the luxury of that because so John Carpenter said this movie was shot between like 10 and 18 days, which is nothing right know, to shoot a movie. And a lot of movies, they don't even have the chance to do the stuff that he was doing. It's just that he was so good at it and he was so talented that I think he was able to bring in um, a fluidity. I keep using that word, but that doesn't always exist, but that doesn't mean that a lot of these movies don't look great. And so it's a lot of times when you see them on these upgraded releases, you're like, wow, that just opened my eyes to like how well made this film is. Yeah, totally. So so there's a really good sh- good uh, jump scare in this section where she, she gets into a car and then a, a, like a drunk guy appears and peers into the car window. And it's it really, it made Ben really jump. Yeah. <laughs> um, awesome. and I love that. I love that. And then he just says, it's a hell of a life, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? He's speaking for all of us. He is, he's totally. So we get um, one of the, next up, we get one of the many shots of Arkham Towers that's clearly drawn in. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's right. clearly drawn onto the screen. It's so nice. Yeah, there's a lot of, so it's interesting that, um, I remember commenting on the commentary, I don't remember exactly what I said, but the I think the architecture is really important to the film as well, because it's sort of like, I guess the fact that it does look more urban, you expect more, connection but there's a lot of isolation in the film you know and i think showing these sort of big almost um lack of identity what's the they have no identity the buildings you know what i mean they look just like the building across the way from them and and it's it we're living in this very sort of life without identity without connection you know she even says she she even says when she takes the apartment it'll be like living in the top drawer of a glass box yeah (laughs) i love that that's kind of what it's like, isn't it? You know. Yeah, it, that that has double meaning though, too, because like I think there's a couple of uh, meanings behind it. In that, yes, I can be seen everywhere, which is foreshadowing, but also as a beautiful woman. Yeah. It's like it's like they want to put you in a glass box and keep you in this certain kind of station, and which we find out later she's not. She's a TV director, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I love her life of swanning around smoking and listening to Vivaldi. I think. <laughs> It's just ridiculous. Um, but um still relatable. And then she gets another yeah. she gets another excursions unlimited delivery. They send her a telescope and then they send her a um polka dot bikini, which is interesting. Right. So fits. what do what do we think um what do we think the, the stalker is doing by sending her a telescope? Is he inviting her to play a game with him, do you think? I think so. I looked at that as um an example. It's like character building without dialogue because so because the fact that she's a TV director not only shows that she's probably a pretty strong woman to be in that industry as a woman, because that was really rare even in the 70s, but also that she was good with technology, right? And so when she gets the telescope, there's a whole scene of her listening to classical music, putting it together. Yeah, and yeah. and she's very adept at like everything she does. As a matter of fact, we see her fixing things early on when she first moves into the apartment. And then I think the idea that she's willing to look too mm. is like mm. a, kind of a strong thing because he wants to look at her and have all the power but she's not afraid to look back and so i think that that scene is doing like a couple of different things 
um, with it. But I do think there's a game involved. Yeah, because he wants to see how far she'll go. But I think that she's going to go much farther than he was hoping for. And we get hints throughout the film, don't we? So they never, they never drop they never drop a ton of exposition on you about what her past is. They right. just drip feed. So we know for at this point, all we know is that she's perfectly nice, but she's also kind of remote and, and guarded. We know that she's probably been hurt in the past. So it's interesting that she does now live in the top drawer of a glass box and she's got this telescope and she's willing, she's willing to sort of look out into the world, but only on her terms and from a little safe ivory tower. Mm, that's interesting. You know, yeah. You know, that, that tells you a lot about her own the guards that she's got up, I think. That's so good. I wish I'd done this first so I could put that in the commentary and start <laughs> Re-record it for the record. Um, so yeah, we at this point we do get sort of little drip feeds of info about her past life and you see her vulnerability through how she deals with Paul. She hesitates to let him in so quick and she talks about the fact that she has actually been stalked before in New York as well. Oh, you know what? I don't remember that, and I feel really bad. Remind me. She talks about. Do you know what? I never even made. I never even wrote the details down. Oh yeah, so she. she it's really bizarre. So she has a. She had a stalker in New York who used to send her underwear. Oh, that's and, right. And ask her to take photographs of the underwear, but not her in it. Yeah, that's <laughs> just right. The, just a photograph. That's right. I remember that. You know, that's that's so interesting. So. Oh, one of the things that might be interesting to your listeners, and I don't want to just rehash the commentary in case people have heard it, but one of the things that really strikes me about this film is, you know, it's it's loosely based on a true story. Okay. So what and was the story? The, the story, and I'm doing this off memory, was um, it wasn't the same motivations that this guy had. It's totally different. But there was a girl who lived in a high-rise building. It was in Chicago, I think. And she was um, being watched by somebody and it was really strange because um, she had this male, she was a student and I think maybe a part-time nurse or something. And she was studying one night with uh, like a male fellow student and um, he went home and he got a phone call, oh. which is really creepy. Right. Yeah, and he yeah. would, he would do things like he would follow her onto um, these trains and apparently one day he touched her hand or something <sighs> and that was it. And so I think one day, and I can't remember how the telescope got involved, in, but I feel like there was a telescope action, but she saw him dancing on top of a building across the way naked oh, wow. and she called the police and they couldn't do anything about it. So they actually just came and talked to him and I think he was married. And the fact that he might get his cover blown and get in trouble with his family ended up being enough for him to stop. But um, but the story ended up appearing in the L.A. Times. Actually, that's where I found the story. And I think that's where John Carpenter saw the story. And so there's there's different tales about where the story came from. I think I've read that an NBC executive saw um, the story and mentioned it. And then John Carpenter wrote the movie. And then I think I also read that John Carpenter saw the story himself and wrote and was inspired to write the script. So I'm not sure where yeah, yeah. it came from, but it did come from it, it is rooted in that newspaper article. Intriguing. Um, so Paul is very sweet with her and doesn't want to rush her or anything but he does go snooping on her behalf and finds out that shock of all shocks Excursions Unlimited is in fact a bogus company <gasps> no no who saw that coming at this point um, Ben Ben actually pointed out that how um, the phone ringing became such a point of tension and it reminded me a little bit of when a stranger calls where the phone actually becomes like a character in the film that's <laughs> you know, right yeah whenever it, whenever it rings you sort of go on edge it's, it's really menacing that's quite effective yes it is um, hello i got a great idea how about dinner tomorrow night no steve 
tone, the time will be 8.42. Exactly. No date, but at least you know what time it is. Can't take it, huh? Too bad. Is open for you, baby. It will always be that way. If you come back to take me in your arms, you'll have come back to stay. We got to, so there's a really nice scene where Sophie and um, Lee go for dinner at an Italian restaurant. And Sophie has a great line because uh, obviously Lee doesn't have an appetite and she's just sitting there with a cigarette. And Sophie says that she's smoking her dinner. That's very glamorous. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, but, that, but as Ben says, you know, how else do you get those cheekbones? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just, it's true. It's true. Yeah. Well, this is the, the, that really nice moment you mentioned before, isn't it? Where Sophie talks about how she, she refers to her preference and she says uh, it's never really made you uncomfortable. And this is where Lee says, well, me, men have never made me uncomfortable, so why should you? Yes. Um, and there's a nice, so, so throughout throughout the, the film, well, from about 20 minutes in, we realised that Sophie's actually had a job offer in, from, uh, in Fort Worth, so she could move away. And here we get a really nice little hint at Sophie's life because she basically says she's going home to see if there's uh, something to salvage salvage in LA yeah. before she decides to move or not. Basically. That's what I was going to comment on. What I like so much about the scene and with and with her dates with Paul is that she talks about what's happening to her. And I think that that's important too, because if we're talking about it as a metaphor for rape, one of the things that women never do is talk about it. Completely, and the fact yeah. that she does it and that it's accepted that yeah. she's not done anything to bring this attention to her is really, I think, important. There's moments and there's a couple of moments There's a, a bit later on as well where Paul and Sophie r- really rally around her. Yeah. And that's another moment of true friendship that really resonates with me. And I love to see that, in, especially in a horror movie. I love to see friendship where the, where the, the mates really, you know, Bond, bound together like little emperor penguins and protect yeah. her. Really yeah, nice. I, I love it too. I find that I'm most drawn to the way uh, characters interact with each other in films. And, you know, like, I'm not saying Friday the 13th needs to have more depth than it does, but if you have characters that are likable, then you're extra invested. But it also, if you feel the camaraderie is real, then it it just brings it more home for me. Yeah, totally. Totally. It's a little bit like Nightmare on Elm Street, isn't it, where uh, Nancy and Glenn go to stay with Tina because of her nightmares. I think that's, that's really right. Sweet. Yeah, doesn't no, end no, well, no. but you know, yeah, <laughs> it doesn't no, end well for any of them. No, but like, but it just, it's real, you know, and and especially when you're that young, and even as young as, um, even though they're older characters, adult characters, when you're the age that I think Lee is in this film, when you're in your like late twenties, you're still sort of like, your friends are everything, right? You haven't gotten oh, yeah. married yet and started your families, and so there's this there's this kinship that you form with certain groups, and and um, it's important, I think, to have that reflected. Well, as well for, you know, queer queer audience watching this film, 
you know, it's, that's what we do as, as queer people. We, we, we go out and find our family mm-hmm. um, and yeah. that, that, that sort of tight bond friendship thing is, 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 is more important than blood a lot of the time. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's something that does resonate with me a lot. Um, so then um, the Soka crosses a line and sends her a bottle of wine. <laughs> Tips her over the edge. This is the point where she calls the cops. And um, I'm always really pleasantly surprised when you realise that it's uh, Charles Cyphers who's playing. Yes. I always forget that he's in this film and I love him so much as well. I do too. He's another carpenter staple. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, she gets the usual stick of, um, you know, if, if the caller isn't actually threatening you then. We can't do anything about it. And this is the point when I'm screaming at the TV going, just lie and say, say yes, say that he's threatened to kill you just to get the police involved. Yeah, I think that too is not funny whenever I watch these things. Just say something because you need help. Yeah, yeah. Um, And then we get a great, great, um, great set piece, which is pure John Carpenter slasher movie territory where she, first of all, she gets, the stalker sends her nudes and then he leaves her a note saying that he'll meet her in the garage downstairs um, and then we see that she's, you know, she's a badass. She's taken no shit. Yes. She gets a letter, she gets armed with a letter opener, and um, she goes down there to the to the empty, empty laundry room, um, and then she ends up hiding in a crawl space, which is really cool. Whilst the, the what we assume to be the stalker stands right above her with a cigar. Yeah, that's a beautifully lit scene too. It's fabulous. It's so good, yeah. so tense. So after this is the first time she sleeps with Paul, mm. isn't it? I think it might be well. She, she's fine. It's interesting. I this is the part. I guess it's just a, it's a movie trope, where like I'm so terrified, and then they, I'm going to make out with somebody. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and I guess it works in this film because they were building up to something, and also because I think she's afraid to be alone, and he gives her this kind of yeah sense of safety so it, it makes sense to that degree. But like you know, when you see that kind of stuff in movies, it's always like you know when I'm that terrified. I'm not thinking sexy time. <laughs> yeah, it's not sexy time for me. I mean, for some people it is, and I don't want to judge that. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, I mean, sexy time or I'm alone in this house and I'm terrified. I know I'm going to get a bath. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the other favorite. that's the other trope. I mean, I love that they exist, you know, yeah, movies, yeah. but yeah. that is completely the movie universe <laughs> uh, talking right there. So she, um, so this is the moment she sleeps with Paul for the first time. We see that she, from from across the wave through the stalker's POV, we see that she takes her top off. We don't get any actual nudes because it's a TV movie. But then I did wonder, um, do we do we think that they had sex with the curtains open the whole time? That's a good question. <laughs> I don't know because I'm trying to think. She puts on a robe and she's walking through the apartment the next day. And I can't remember if she closes or opens the curtains. I, well, I she think doesn't she actually... She doesn't close them, does she, until she realizes? So this is oh, that's 50, right. yeah. 57 minutes into the movie is the first time that she looks out the window, all those other windows, and goes, oh, my God, the stalker's over there. I guess it's the first time he says, I like your yellow robe, and she realizes yeah. maybe. Yeah. But you're right. Yeah, like, in general, I keep my curtains closed anyway probably because i've watched too many of these kinds of movies but um yeah it does take her a while to but i also think also i don't know if this is a good place to insert this but there's a movie called fear stock that came out in 1989 that i have to i can't recommend it enough if you love this movie and i hadn't seen it when i did the commentary for this but it stars joe clayberg and it's about a soap opera writer who um (laughs) who's being yeah you might want you might really get something out of this she's being stalked by a guy who specifically picks women 
who are independent just so he can kind of steal things from them emotionally and mentally. And, and she's having none of it. She's not going to do it. And so it becomes like a real toe to toe battle about you want me out of this house and you want to terrify me, but I'm not leaving and you can't make me. And it becomes a real standoff between this guy and it it just goes all different places and it's fantastic. And I think that I guess like, because Lee is such a strong character, um, I can kind of see if it is an idea, like she doesn't want to give up anything of herself mm-hmm. to this guy. So I can see yeah. this idea of like not closing the curtains as much as possible because she doesn't want him to steal what he, what he hasn't stolen yet, you know? Yeah. And she says repeatedly, doesn't she? So when they realize that the guy is across the street and stuff, she says repeatedly, no, I'm not leaving my home. Cause the, cause they want to Sophie and Paul wanted to come out of the flat and either move house or come and stay at their place for safety. Yeah. And she's like, I'm not letting him chase me out, which is really cool. They do that great camera move. Don't these, what's it called? I always forget, you know, the one from Jaws. Um, oh yeah. Where they pull back and then pull yeah. forward. I don't know what that's called either, but um, you oh, know, it's funny. I saw Jaws last night at the drive-in and I was thinking oh, about yeah. that scene where he's sitting <laughs> on the beach and it yeah. looks like he's moving forward while the, Oh, the dolly zoom. It's called the dolly zoom. Um, so she, so Sophie comes around. This is this is the moment where Sophie comes around for support while Paul's talking to the police on the phone. And it's that this is the true to life stuff with the friends rallying around her and and all that. I think that's really well, good. That's also where um, Adrian Barbeau's character really solidifies that it's like a rape because David Byrne is like, "Don't talk like that," and she's like, "But that's what it is." It is, yeah. And, well, yeah, that's and. The- and, you know, he, he understands that she's in a really bad, dangerous situation, but he, as a man, hasn't made the connection to what exactly is happening to her emotionally. And so Sophie's there to really like, this is like the probably one of the worst things somebody can do to a woman, you know, to invade her privacy in such a way. It's, it is a rape. With his big fucking phallic telescope as well. Yeah, that's right. Oh my gosh, yeah. I love him. Um, I absolutely love Sophie here because she she grabs that telescope. And she's like, great, I'm going to spy on the neighbors. So she yeah. absolutely loves every minute. And she says, there's a woman on 33 cheating on her husband. Yeah, <laughs> she's like, that. she says, that guy can't be a husband. He looks like Al Pacino. Um, it's, it's, yeah, I love it. She's putting all these little narratives and stuff. She's fabulous. That's exactly what I'd do, to be fair. And I'd be writing them down in a notebook for a future script <laughs> um so this is the moment isn't it where the stalker basically frames someone else so there's like a guy over on in the other apartment block who's like an older guy and he's got a telescope so he makes it basically look like this guy is the stalker but it's it's you know it's the film's still got 25 minutes left so we know it's not him yeah she'd seen him in the um in the laundry area in the um when oh, she so goes after the guy yeah he's yeah the guy she runs getting... into and so when she yeah. sees him on that looking through the telescope she's like that's the guy from the laundry room and um and so it just makes him look even worse and it's kind of heart-wrenching because he gets run out of town he loses his pension and not only that but they're showing him photos that he took and he's like yeah i I took that and then they put in photos that don't belong to him and he's like that's not mine and it's very upsetting because you know he's being you know quote uh i I don't know how else to say this he's being fingered um (laughs) <laughs> and it's and it's really uncomfortable to watch that because you know like his whole life has been destroyed because of this well, other yeah because 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 he's he's in that he's in that really awful position isn't he where he's not he hasn't actually gone as far as they think and he is basically labeled as a sex offender and he's not yeah so everything's uprooted he has to go and live in des moines 
<laughs> Which is hell, I'm sure. <laughs> um, so then Lee opens the drapes and plans to get back to life. She starts to swan around in a polo neck with an air of gay abandon, uh, only to receive only to receive another creepy letter. So, uh-oh, um, the guy's still there. So she goes back to her telescope and spots another guy with a telescope over in the other tower. And then she realizes she fingered the wrong man. Which you know should never happen. Um, <laughs> Always finger the right man if you can. Never, yes, never finger the wrong man. Um, so the this is where we get to the reverse rear window set piece, isn't it? So Lee um, goes over to the apartment and leaves Sophia her place, and Sophia is watching through the telescope whilst Lee goes on a mission to 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 find out more about her stalker. They've got walkie talkies. It's really tense. Um, and basically, in a flip of in a flip of Grace Kelly and and James Stewart, we essentially we think that um, we think that Lee, the protagonist, is the one in danger, and Sophie is safely ensconced in her apartment. However, sadly, tragically, it's poor Sophie who gets it in the neck in this scene. Yeah, it's, it's all- really really upsetting. It's yeah, it's so yeah. sad. Um, now, are you going to talk about so? I don't know if I'm cutting ahead, but like, did you wonder who got on the plane? And yeah, yeah. So, who got on? yeah so Sophie's supposed to leave to town that night and she, um, she comes over and th- then she's gone. And so when, when Lee gets back to her apartment, there's no, there's no evidence that anything had happened in the apartment yeah. and the police yeah. are like, you know, she got on the plane. But and- they say that they say the ticket was used. So I don't know whether that means that, Maybe the killer did it. Did he fly to Fort Worth and then come back the next day? Maybe. I wondered if maybe he just checked in and and then just left the gate because airports then they didn't have the same security that they have now. And I don't even know if your name had to be on the ticket. Maybe just the seat number. I couldn't figure it out. And so we were like, is there another movie in this? Because is there a movie (laughs) about the girl that's playing Sophie now? (gasps) Wow. Yeah. Fake Sophie. Yeah, Fake Sophie. That would be the sequel title. Fake Sophie. Played by Adrian Barbo. Right, he's a doppelganger. Slightly different hair. Yeah. Because <laughs> I did think I have, I have actually made the note somewhere in here that I wish there was a Sophie spinoff because I want to find out, you know, what she was trying to salvage. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I did too. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it's really, I think it's really scary actually where Sophie starts to hear that someone's playing, fiddling with the door lock on the apartment while she's alone and then she it slowly dawns on her that she's in danger and the lights go out and lee has to watch and, and listen from the stalker's apartment whilst her friend is murdered in her apartment yeah, that's really pretty awful. upsetting that i guess that would be used later in a couple different movies um to different degrees but like um deadly messages was a tv movie with kathleen beller that came out in 1985 that has kind of a scene of a woman who loses her keys she's um got a friend is staying at her apartment and so she's climbing up the gates the beginning of the film i'm not really giving anything away she's climbing up the little whatever escape what do you call it fire escape or whatever and mm-hmm. and she's and her friend is being murdered and she and you can see like through the curtain something's happening to her but then when the police get there there's no evidence that anything had happened and that movie feels a lot like a de palma movie and it actually uses a lot of stuff from body double and of course body double uh, right uh, features craig wasson's character right watching deborah van sheldon is it deborah mm-hmm. i think it's just deborah sheldon um getting murdered from across the yeah. way and then there's that whole scene of him running to the house yeah. to try to save her and then we kind of see that with lee um here in uh, someone's watching me 
Yeah, yeah. I would never even thought of the body double link with this film, but the whole telescope thing is there, yeah. Yeah, well, because it's more, I guess it feels more like he's taking from Hitchcock, but I mean, this well, predates that, yeah. so. They're both, they're both riffing on Rear Window, aren't they, with these yeah. scenes? Yeah, definitely. So, deflated and defeated, poor Lee comes home to find her shower running in the bathroom has steamed up, and then someone has scrolled, no one believes you, on the bathroom mirror. Which made me think of um, What Lies Beneath. Oh yeah, I used to. I love that movie. I haven't seen it since it yeah. originally came out, but I loved yeah. it. Yeah, there's a similar moment there. And then, so this is for me. This is the only moment in the whole film that I think is a little bit cheesy, and it's the bit where they have to reveal that the bug is under the table. So she sort of faints and pulls the table over with her. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I, I can let it slide because it's such a great movie, Dan. I love it. But this, yeah, that's the only moment in it that I go, oh, okay, a little bit corny. But it's got that great camera shot of her laying next to the bug and it's just a close up of her face as she moves her head over and she sees this little weird mechanism next to her. And it's quite subtle, actually. Her reaction to it is quite subtle. She doesn't like scream or anything. She's like, oh, shit. I just love that shot. It's just beautiful. Yeah, no, it's good. Um, So Lee and Paul trace it back to like a a maintenance guy called Herbert Stiles. And um, Lee, ever proactive and no nonsense, she can't be bothered wasting time with the police. So she goes to his house. (laughs) And smashes a window in. She kicks a window through and breaks yeah. it. She's, she's such a badass. Yeah, she's she's done. She's going to take yeah, care of business. Yeah, no more no more waiting for men to sort this out. She's going to do it herself. Um, and then the great another great fucking scare. It's so scary where she's in there and the taxi driver appears at the window. That's right. Yeah, it's just brilliant. It's so creepy. Um, so she realizes that that's the he's the culprit. Um, and she heads home and. Uh, finds that the lights are out in her apartment and somebody is waiting for her there. So this is the big showdown. This is like such an amazing scene. And every time I watch it, it just gets to me. And so there's this part where um, I guess the lights go out and she recognizes, you know, he's there and Mm -hmm. she's going to, I don't know if I'm getting ahead of you, but she smashes the window with her chair and then she picks up the chair. She's still got it in her hands, but she lifts it up, right? To, to yeah, smash yeah. the next window. And he just seamlessly appears on screen behind yeah. her and he grabs her. And I watched it in slow motion this time because you don't even see him enter into the frame. It's so yeah, smooth yeah. and it's terrifying because he's just there. It's very Michael Myers, isn't it? It is. And actually when we finally see the killer, even though he's not wearing a mask, he's got this very blank stare that reminds me Michael and he's in coveralls by the way yeah 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 Yeah, it's uh, it's so foreshadowing Michael Myers and it's that scene in Halloween 2 it makes me think of that scene in Halloween 2 you know where where in the opening in the opening scenes where where he's basically going around the neighborhood killing people and where the girl has stood in the in the doorway and he just pounces from the corner of the screen and stabs her Um, yeah it, it makes me think of that but there's a grace just before he attacks her she has a fabulous speech, doesn't she? Where she basically says to him, you're afraid of me. Yeah, oh, I love she it. She says, you're afraid of me. You can't get too close. Come on, face me. Um, and then that's, you know, the moment where she smashes the window and then he pounces and they have that great tussle, don't they, where she's hanging out the window and it's, it's yeah. shot from above. It's so cool. So she's cool. she could fall to her death but she manages to grab a shard of glass stabs him in the back and then he takes a tumble over the side and then such a characterful closing line where she's sort of sad and she basically says you got too close 
Yeah, I love that. And I'm also thinking a couple things. So that's that's kind of double meaning because she had not been letting a lot of people get close to that's her. Because right? yeah. yeah. you brought that up so well. Yeah. And um, also, originally, she was supposed to push him out the window. Okay. But the network or somebody who oversaw the film was like, that's not very ladylike. Um, and so they actually said that. And uh, and so they had him, he had to fall, I guess, because they, they thought that maybe it was too aggressive to have her pushing him out the window. But I would have loved to have seen her just like grab him yeah, and let toss loose. him out. Totally, yeah, totally. Um, I think what I, what I really applaud this film for is throughout, the, throughout it, they really cling to her character. They don't. She she never really acts out of character. I mean, the, the faint maybe is a little bit, but um, she, they they follow it through. So, like I said before, they don't drop all this exposition on you about you know this is what happened to me. This is why I don't really trust men. You know all that sort of stuff. But we know that stuff has stuff has gone down in her past. So when she says you got too close, you know that it's just so loaded. Yeah. So it's so characterful right to the end. So I love that. It's a great ending. Yeah, it is. I think it's it's perfect um i think the movie is about as perfect as you can get especially for a tv movie that was shot in such little time and and actually 18 days is an average for a tv movie so to get to and a lot of tv movies are like this i'm not diminishing other tv movies but it just goes to show how accomplished a tv movie can be and often is yeah yeah. You know, so if people have only seen someone's watching me and, they, and they're listening to this and they really like it, they really need to seek out some other TV movies because so many of them, I don't know. I mean, obviously, John Carpenter is an incredible filmmaker, but there's so many TV movies that are so good, you know what I mean? And are doing a lot of the same work that he did here. So if you had to recommend, say, three others, what would, um, off, the back of, off the back of watching this, what would they be? Well, I would recommend Fear Stock that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Uh, I would also just movies that are sort of, I guess, reminiscent of this in terms that they're thrillers. And I think that they're really well made. Another one I would recommend is called No Place to Hide, which um, stars Kathleen Beller, who I mentioned earlier from Deadly Messages, which is an amazing um, thriller about a girl who is getting ready to inherit a lot of money and somebody is trying to kill her. And we don't really know why or who they are. And it, at the beginning of it is very reminiscent of Prom Night. Are we talking about Kirby from Dynasty? Yes, yes, thank oh, okay. you. Yeah, I'll have to be sold on that because I really hate that character in, in Dynasty. But I've I've heard before that she that the actress is better in other things, though. Yeah, I think you'd really like her in this. No Place to Hide is one of my all-time favorite movies. And I will go ahead and recommend, since we're recommending movies with soap opera writers, I will recommend Fantasies, which I know you've seen, oh, with I Suzanne Plachette, yeah. right, about a soap writer who um, is also incredibly independent and somebody starts picking off um, her castmates and it's really a struggle about her independence and maintaining it. And uh, while all this stuff is happening around her and her character is who I want to be when I grow up, (laughs) you know what I mean? She's just incredible and she's unflappable and she's not going to give up any of herself for this person that's trying to terrify her into submission. Right. And that's kind of what all these films are doing. I think no place to hide is more about, the transformation it's its more about the final girl transformation than anything else because i think kathleen beller's character starts off a little weaker than the other women that i've mentioned but it's about how she grows and uh, is able to take care of herself uh, i think there's more male involvement in that as compared to something like this where she's 
doing it for herself. She's like you said, she's not going to wait for the men to take care of things and I'm going to handle it. And fear stock is really about her handling it. Um, the other two have, it's a little different, but they're all kind of similar in tone, I think, and in what they're doing and they're all excellent films. Okay, fabulous. So they come highly recommended. I always love your recommendations. I remember you recommended Five Desperate Women to me. Oh, yeah. Um, with Stephanie Powers and Robert Conrad. And um, I absolutely love that film. That's so camp. It's just unbelievable. It's so good. And it's, but it's also doing really important things, too. So I talk about it in the lecture, like the lecture you went to. Uh, when I yeah. lecture about TV movies, I love to talk about Five Desperate Women because it's got, um, and it's not, there's not really a final girl in it, quote unquote. But yeah. the the girl who takes sort of the most step forward to kind of resolve the problem of women being murdered on this island is a black character. She's a she black is, woman yeah, and she's a prostitute. Wow. Mm-hmm. And you never see that ever. And it's like the most marginalized character is the most is the smartest. She's the most courageous. You know what I mean? And and I love that they did that. And so Five Just Women, I agree, it's got its moments, you know. And it is it can be really campy, but it's also doing something really interesting and progressive at the same time. No, totally, yeah. And and it makes sense, doesn't it, that a character who's marginalized has probably got more smarts because she's had to go through more shit than the than the um, yeah. the sort of the comfortable white women you know it's, yeah absolutely it's, make it just stand to reason i think that i think what makes it really camp for me is there's a scene where they where they decide to try and flee under the cover of darkness and they're all wearing the loudest outfits oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all in like pink yeah. and yellow and green and... <laughs> i mean the characters are also a little bit stereotyped like the engine at coma characters like the southern bell who's like the alcoholic and they're all great characters and there's a i love the female friendship in that and i think that yeah, that movie is yeah. heightened by the fact that Joan Hackett, who is the first victim in the film, is uh, has a really sad story. Is that about the dog? Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> yes, it's yeah. made up her family, you know, yeah, and all this yeah. stuff, and 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 so it's got a, it actually has like some emotional depth to it at the same time, but it has these crazy like over the top sort of scenes and dialogue. So it's a mixture of all these things, but that's I love that. I think that it has entertainment value, but it also like it's doing something progressive in their subtext as in there as well. And John Carpenter with someone's watching me, this movie is you can watch it, just sit down and watch it. And it's fantastic, but there is so much subtext and it's totally. just so beautifully done. And it's there, the more you watch it as well. It's, it's yeah. like we were saying weren't we, before we started recording that this really stands up to repeated viewings. It never really gets dull. No. You, you do, you do pick up on more layers as you watch it. And um, yeah, everyone involved is really cool. Um, Oh, that's that's wonderful. Have you, anything else you, you want to say before we wrap up? No, I think that's everything. Um, I was really happy to revisit this and, and to see that yeah, after watching it 5,000 times for that commentary that it actually still is a movie I can watch over and over yeah. again. <laughs> well, speaking, speaking of the commentary, so that's on the screen, Factory Blu-ray, isn't it? Correct, but, yeah. I, I think it came yeah. out in 2018. Yeah, I snapped that up. I was in, I think I was in, I think I got it in LA at Amoeba Music. Oh wow! Yeah, I kept I've kept the uh, I kept the amoeba price tag on it just so I could remember. <laughs> um, that blows my mind because I also did the last house and left commentary with my friend Bill Ackerman for Arrow in I think yeah. 2018 as well. And uh, a friend of mine who lives in LA, he took a picture of it at Amoeba. It was on one of the shelves, and I was like, I can't believe that I'm in this package. You know what I mean? Selling yeah, it at Amoeba, yeah. and it just is so neat for me. <laughs> um what what's coming up next then have you got more commentaries coming out more, you know i do we, but they haven't announced it yet so I, i'm not okay. at liberty to cool. say what's coming out but um i do have at least one more commentary coming out this year and also uh it was just announced that i wrote the liner notes 
for a movie so unlike someone's watching me called The Last Starfighter. It's a movie that I love. Uh, I remember that. That yes, was a video okay. that was a video video store staple here in, in the UK. I remember seeing that a lot. Oh yeah. Well, it's got Lance Guest in it too. So I know if we talked a lot about Halloween too, we must have talked a lot about Lance Guest. Lance Guest, of course. Dreamy Lance Guest. Oh, so dreamy. Yeah. Um <laughs> You sounded really passionate about that then. I am. I love I did interview him a while ago um, for um he did some TV stuff and I interviewed him for it and he was he was really nice. Yeah. And but it was like I'm talking to like my one of my ultimate crushes from like my teenage years. And seeing him in The Last Starfighter was that was the first thing I remember seeing him in. And I just I remember watching that on the big screen at 13 and just my heart just melting every which way. And so to be yeah, to be associated with the release of this film. And, and I didn't write about how much I love Lance Guest in it. I mean, I could write a two, easily a 2,000-word essay about it, but I didn't. Well, let's reunite for another podcast, and we'll do Halloween 2, and we'll just talk about Lance oh. Guest for two hours. Can we please? Because yeah, I want day. to so bad. <laughs> so speaking of podcasts, <laughs> you have your podcast too. What's that called? It's called the Made for TV Mayhem Show, and yeah. you're going to be on it soon. Oh yes, to, or you? I don't know when this is coming out, so it may already be up. But we're going to be talking about Aaron Spelling, and I'm really excited about that because I know you're a, a, a biggest fan as I am. Oh yeah, definitely. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, well, this this was wonderful. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Thank it's you. I loved it. Um, and I know that you know from past experience we could actually just sit and talk for the next three hours, but um, my husband needs his dinner, so <laughs> wow, break how, it there. how domestic of you! I do, I do want to say just real quick. Um, just I forgot, like talking to you is like sitting down and watching Letter to Brezhnev again. Oh my god, I was telling Ben that you're a big fan of Letter to Brezhnev. He can't believe it. That's so cool. Yeah, I just rewatched it too, and and I was thinking about you know the movie really well, like you can quote from it, and oh, um, yeah. and when we had dinner, you were doing some of the lines, and and I, when I rewatched the movie a few months ago, really, I was like, oh yeah, that's right, that's right. <laughs> so, right. have you got that new that nice Blu-ray that came out? I don't. I only have it on VHS. I didn't even know oh, it had a Blu-ray release. Did you know that that cup the couple the in that movie got together in real life and they're yeah. I think they're married now. Yeah, they did get together and they were at um there was a screening of it a couple of years ago here in Liverpool. <gasps> and they were they were both there. They were both there. And Margie Clark so Mar- I think we've we've talked about this in uh, in person, but Margie Clark who plays Teresa, she lives around the corner from us and we see her quite regularly. Oh my God. Yeah. I don't even know what I would do. Yeah. And her yes, and, and her sister, Angela, I worked with. She she wrote on Hollyoaks oh. for, for a small time as well. So I so I worked with Angela Clark. Well, when you who plays see, the sister. When you see Margie Clark, do you ever or did I say her name right? Margie Clark, do you ever do you ever say tell Igor I said hello? <laughs> no, but I'll do it next time. And I'll do it. I'll send it from you. In fact, what I'll do is I'll record it and I'll WhatsApp her response to you. Okay, please. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks so much, Amanda. It's been fabulous. I've loved it. Yeah, thank you. And um, yes, we shall talk very soon. Bye. Bye.